Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we're glad that you can gather with us to open up God's Word and to uh, read in Nehemiah 4 to worship Him together uh, this first week of June. If you'll open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4, we also have uh, the Scripture journals. So uh, if you haven't been in a few weeks or you're new to Christ Bible Church, we provide uh, journals that are uh, the scripture on one side and a blank page on the other for you to make notes on. Uh, if you'd like that resource, they're just on the back uh, counter. So go, feel free to grab one at any point and keep it uh, for yourself as our gift to you. Uh, but open up to Nehemiah chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at uh, almost a mirror image of Ezra chapter 4, a chapter full of the oppressive nature of God's enemies seeking to stop the work being done in Jerusalem. And so open up your Bibles to chapter 4 here in the book of Nehemiah, and uh, let's read together. Now when Sanballat heard that we, were rebuilt, or that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O Lord, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we look at Nehemiah chapter 4, we're drawn to the work that you are doing through your servant, Nehemiah. And Father, we seek to, to look at these words in chapter 4, to be encouraged rather than discouraged, to be people that develop great resolve and perseverance, to be people who can lead those that are around us and point others towards you. We ask that you would enable our minds to understand and remember that our hearts would be softened and able to receive uh, your word and your truth this morning, and that you would be at work through the preaching of your word, Nehemiah chapter 4. Amen. Leading in the face of opposition, how will Nehemiah push these people who are beginning to crumble under the pressure of opposition? How will he help to keep them from being overly discouraged? In a common uh, today type of narrative, I think we could press this and say, how will Nehemiah keep the people of Israel from becoming like the Lakers and their fans? That dreaded team from Los Angeles who faced great opposition and have no hope now. To God be the glory for that. But as we read here, Nehemiah has this almost like, these people just want to quit. 
There's this opposition that we'll see is growing and growing and growing, and Nehemiah must figure out a way to help the people push through it. But as we read, even here at the beginning, we think and see there might be something more at stake than just the opposition of one group of people against another. There seems to be more at stake than just the physical threat of outsiders as we read through Nehemiah chapter 4. It indeed is pointing towards something bigger, a higher hope, a greater security than that of Nehemiah. These are the questions that we answer this morning, and the three points that we will focus on are this. First, Nehemiah is primarily concerned about God's honor. He is most concerned about God's honor. Secondly, opposition is inevitable. And third, Nehemiah is able to lead because he understands his people. In the book of Nehemiah, the presence of the enemies of Israel tend to push the plot forward. They show up, something else happens, the anxiety of the people or of us reading it begins to grow. And indeed, that's the case here in chapter 4, when these two men, Sanballat and Tobiah, show up yet again. These are the same men that were brought into the presence of when Nehemiah first returns. In chapter 2, verse 10, when Nehemiah first gets to Jerusalem, it says this, But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. A little later, though, in chapter 2, when the people of Israel first say, Let us rise and build this wall, after Nehemiah has instructed them, these two men again respond. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and now Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Every step that Nehemiah takes towards securing Jerusalem, these men take another step forward in their hostility towards him and the people of Jerusalem. And it's very clear that they are becoming more and more worried that Nehemiah might actually be successful. They had doubted and were mildly annoyed at his presence at first. And when the people start building, they laugh at them and make fun of them. But now that the building has continued, they start to see Nehemiah is actually a threat to get this done. So who are these guys? We did not answer that last week. And so it's important for us to understand the nature of these two men and what's really at stake here. Sanballat is the governor of Samaria. They're just to the north of Jerusalem. He has great power in the area. In fact, he might even be acting as a pseudo-ruler under Artaxerxes in this entire area. He has a standing army, so it's not just the Persians that are there, but there's an army uh, of Samaritan people of their nation and maybe even these other nations that are around them that are under his control. He has great power and influence in the area. But then this other guy is a little bit more difficult to understand. His name is Tobiah. He has a Jewish name, which is striking. He's kind of numbered among the Jewish people. He has intimate knowledge, as we continue to read through Nehemiah, of the inner workings of Jewish culture in Jerusalem, and he has great influence even there. He's called the Ammonite servant. But then later in chapter 4, he's just called Tobiah, and the Ammonites are listed separately. So he may or may not even be an Ammonite. He's just this man, he's like the sidekick, uh, the vice president, he only has prestige because of Sanballat, 
Like he's nothing really by himself. He's tied to this guy and he rides on his coattails. But he has great influence in Jerusalem and many think that's because he's probably the man that's known as Tabeel in the book of Ezra chapter four and that's his Aramaic name and here we have his Jewish name. And in fact, many believe that he actually is serving as a small-time governor of Jerusalem in the absence of any ruler that had been there. So when Nehemiah comes, he displaces this man's power and influence, and yet he still is working in Jerusalem as we see the story continue to unfold throughout the entire book of Nehemiah. He has great things to lose. Why does this matter? Well, there's a lot that is at stake here. Personally, for these two men, they have power, they have prestige, they have influence, maybe even their own personal security that is at stake. If Nehemiah is successful and the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt and Jerusalem is established as a focal point of this area, maybe the governor of Samaria will no longer be the most important governor. It might end up being Nehemiah. And so he's going to be the one that Artaxerxes goes to. He's going to be the one that has favor from the Persians and the greatest influence in the area. And with that, the right to collect taxes, the right to be uh, having protection from the Persians. There's lots of perks that he might lose if Jerusalem is reestablished. And the same could be said for Tobiah. They stand to lose significant personal power and prestige if the rebuilding effort is successful. But there's something even more than political power that's at stake here. And Nehemiah points us to this. In verse four, after the rebukes of these men, what does he say? Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let their sin uh, let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. These men are threatening Nehemiah. They're threatening the people of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah doesn't pray for protection. He prays for their destruction. He's angry, and he wants these men to be destroyed. And he finishes his prayer with the reason why. They have provoked you to anger. How can this be? How, where are these threats to God when we look at their insults? Halfway through verse two, let's read them again. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? It's very sarcastic and derogatory towards the people of Jerusalem. But it doesn't seem like language that would lead Nehemiah to pray to God, wipe them out. But that's exactly what he does. And it's clear that Nehemiah is incensed at these men. And when we look closely to Nehemiah's response and even what they're saying, it becomes clear why. They have mocked God's people. That's not a thing that is usually looked uh, favorably upon in the presence of God to make fun of his people. But even more than that, they have mocked God. When they say, will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? What they're really saying is, can these Jews pray this wall up? Look at them. They are weak. They are pathetic. They have no strength. They have no resources. The task is too big. They are too small. And not only them, 
their God is too small. There's no way that you will be able to do this. They are mocking not just the Israelite people, but God himself. And upon hearing this, it drives Nehemiah crazy. He doesn't pray for protection, he prays for a curse. And what Nehemiah realizes is that what is at stake with the rebuilding of this wall is God's honor. If this wall is to be rebuilt, it's going to take a work of God. Nehemiah already knows that's going to happen. He is fully assured that God is faithful, that God is great, that God is powerful, that the wall will be rebuilt, that God's hand is upon him. And as these men are assaulting his people and his God, calling them weak, calling them incapable, Nehemiah responds with an understanding that if they don't finish this wall, then these people's assumed threats, their mocking nature, calling the Jews small, calling God small, will be confirmed. If he doesn't lead the people in finishing the wall, God's honor is at stake. To the surrounding nations, God and his people will be small and insignificant. And Nehemiah will have none of that. And so the immediate response to that after his curse is they keep building the wall. And they build it up to half its height, connected all the way around the city. They are making significant progress. And so the story moves on. We see these opposition, these men come back into play. And in fact, their party has grown now. Look at verse 7. When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and now the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and now the Ashdodites have become very angry. North, south, east, west, everywhere around the city of Jerusalem and the people of Judah are connecting to stop the power and influence and the rebuilding of Jerusalem from happening. This shows us two things. First, these men were truly concerned about the people of Israel. They had hoped that by mocking them and calling them insufficient, by mocking their God, by making them seem weak, uh, that it would serve the purpose of crushing their spirit and stopping the work. And indeed, this had worked for nearly a century. 
The work had started. There's psychological warfare, mocking, lies being spread. The work stops. And yet here, it's not working. These people believe that the people of Israel indeed were able to rebuild the wall and would stop at nothing to stop it. It was not the Israelites who were weak and afraid. It's their enemies. And it goes to show that we should remember that insecurity takes many forms. These men, their insecurity comes in the form of sarcasm. They're laughing, they're mocking, they're making fun of the Israelites. But indeed, they are very insecure and worried about this growing threat. If these men aren't stopped, our power is going to shrink. We often, though, think of of, uh, insecurity as a form of uh, passivity or timidity. They're scared, they're cowardly, they do nothing. They're insecure. But so often in life, insecurity comes in so many different forms. I know from my personal experience, it comes in the form of sarcasm and put-downs. When you're really insecure, you get overly sarcastic, you start putting other people down, you bring them down to your level that you see yourself at. And so often when we start to address people and we get hurt and offended by people who are sarcastic, who say things to us that are hurtful, we respond and want to lash out, but I think so often there's an opportunity to, to show and express great love. To say this sarcasm, this anger, these put-downs that are coming from them aren't coming from a place of hostility towards us, it's coming from a place of insecurity for them. Nehemiah never flinches in the sight of these men because he's not afraid of them. And as the story goes on, we see that indeed these men are totally insecure. We can address and help people when we have eyes to see insecurity that comes in the form of many different, many different ways. It could come in sarcasm. It could come through timidity, passivity, moping. And when we see these people, we can lift them up uh, rather than just rebuke them. But secondly, and more important for us here, what we see here in Ezra, Ezra 4 is that opposition is inevitable. The greater the impact we're having in the world for God, the greater the opposition grows against us. We're not going to spend much time on this because when we preached through Ezra chapter 4, which is almost a mere example of this book, we talked exclusively about this. So if you're somebody who feels opposed, discouraged, oppressed, go listen to that sermon. It's on our website. I would encourage you to do it. We spent the whole time talking about having a response to opposition and not being discouraged. It's inevitable. We should expect it, Uh, but here it's growing and growing and growing, so it's important to highlight it. Nehemiah, the crisis is coming, and he's going to have to react. These enemies, now totally surrounding him, have unified and are angry and are plotting together. They will fight the people of Jerusalem, and in doing so, cause great confusion among them. That's what it tells us in verse 8. So this has a twofold effect and has two significant issues Nehemiah must then begin to address. First, it's the obvious one. Nehemiah must address the outside threat. There are armies that have gathered in the countryside. They're not attacking anybody, but they're kind of just roaming around. There's this threat and this fear that is growing among the people because of it. He must address these outside armies. He must have a show of force to get them to go away. But secondly, and more important for his work, he must address the the threat from within. And the threat from within 
is these people are both scared because of these armies that are now threatening them, but they're also discouraged and tired. Nehemiah must lead the people through this. Nehemiah must find an answer to help his people not wilt under the pressure, but to strengthen their resolve. What do we see in this? A godly leader who understands his people. Nehemiah sees the fear that they have and is able to empathize with them, even as he sees their fear as misplaced or even perhaps a lack of faith. Shortly put, Nehemiah knew his people and knew that their discouragement was understandable. He doesn't rebuke them for a lack of faith. He sympathizes with them and helps to lead them out of it. Life is tough. Nehemiah knew that. And I think we know that as well. But so often, however much we pray, trouble seems to only increase and increase and increase rather than decrease. Tough times are there. We pray to God. A week later, things are worse. So we pray again, and a week later, things are worse. And we go to God and we say, God, where are you? Why aren't you answering my prayers? And we might get frustrated. This, no doubt, is how the people of Israel had felt. They had prayed, Nehemiah had prayed, and yet the opposition only seemed to grow. And we're reminded here that prayer is not a convenient device for removing life's problems, but a loving God's provision for coping with them. Nehemiah goes to God, his strength is resolved, his perseverance goes forward. He prays, he strengthens, he can respond. It's never, he prays, the issue goes away. So often we look at prayer like a magic genie, we're going to rub it, and things are going to miraculously get better. But that's simply not how it works in Scripture. Prayer is one of the means that God gives us for coping with the difficulties in life. We go to God, we, we talk to Him, we pray to Him, and we're reminded He's faithful, He's good, He's got this. And so we can face these problems, we can push forward, whether or not they persist in our life. The issue at hand is not God's silence or his lack of answering the prayer. The issue is that the people have been discouraged, that their eyes have gone from God to these armies that have developed out in the fields, and Nehemiah must strengthen them and help them point, uh, point them in the right direction again. Nehemiah knew the prayer had already been answered. Never once in the book does he doubt God's presence and protection and provision. Over and over and over, he said, our God is with us. The God has strengthened me. God has called me. God will do this. He never wavers from that. He knew that God would protect them, and that was that. But for the people, he also knew that they were discouraged, and he needed to strengthen their resolve. So he will lead these people out of, out of discouragement, that the wall might be completed, helping them to grow a greater trust in God through all of it. Why are they discouraged? Verses 10 through 12 show us they're tired, the task seems too large, and their families are vulnerable. The initial excitement of completing this great task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem has worn off. Now, halfway through, they're on the verge of throwing in the towel. And there's a basic truth here. It's much easier to start a great work than to finish one. Many of you, if we were to talk about your houses right now or other projects in your life, have many projects that are 75% done. You start it, it's gonna be great, 
and you don't have the energy to finish it. We get excited about the initial thing that we're going to do, and yet it's difficult to bring it to completion. Two years ago, we moved into our house. We have yet to finish trimming all the paint. There's splotches up on the walls, and a ton, like it's 90% there, and it's been that way for two years. Why? Because it's much easier to paint the walls and you see the color going on and you're excited than take the time to do the little small details to finish it, to bring it to completion. This is true for our life. Nehemiah is pointing us towards this great personal characteristic called perseverance. To seeing things through to completion. It's rare and it's often dwarfed by what I think is its nemesis, procrastination. In college, one of my favorite phrases that anybody ever told me was, if you wait till the last minute, it only takes a minute. It was true, it was dependable, and it resulted in much mediocre work being done by me. Procrastination leaves us from doing our best work. It leaves us vulnerable, and it leaves us doing less than our best. But perseverance sees things through from beginning to end doing our best for God. Any great work, whether for Christ, for family, for vocation, requires perseverance. We should strive to develop this attitude, to be people who are excited to start great tasks, but have the will and resolve to see them through to the end. You wanna raise good kids, it's gonna require perseverance. There's gonna be days that they're good kids, and there's other days that you wish they were somebody else's kids. It happens. It requires perseverance, day after day after day, being committed to the task at hand. You wanna get better at your job and more efficient, productive, it's gonna require doing the small things day after day after day. To not getting caught up in saying, this task is too big, I'll never be able to accomplish it, I can't do this, and just quitting. Nehemiah will help the people to find this resolve to become people who persevere. Raymond Brown writes this in his commentary. That doleful we cannot has destroyed many an imaginative Christian objectives. It has been said in the history of the church, pessimism has always been a greater problem than atheism. On the threshold of Canaan, the fearful travelers said they could not possibly enter the new land. They concentrated on their weakness rather than God's strength. Nehemiah had to persuade his rubble rousers not to make the same mistake. The laborer's strength might well be giving out, but God's power was available, sufficient, and inexhaustible. Nehemiah is looking at these people and saying, I understand you're discouraged, and I understand why. These rocks, this rubble, it's burnt. This task is ginormous. You're exhausted. We've been working day in and day out. Now there's this outside threat. You feel like you can't do it, but you know what? God can. And so he encourages these people. He strengthens their resolve. They will overcome their fear. They will persevere. How will they do this? By, by becoming people who are unified. Their families have been provoked to fear as they saw these armies cruising through the countryside. And so they come, it tells us 10 times, come home, leave, get out of there, save yourself, save us. No doubt these men that are building these walls, which we know came from all over the countryside, the best and most capable men, 
who have left their families and their towns and their properties vulnerable to these, uh, this army that might raid them, that might burn down their homes, might burn their fields, that might even kill their wives and children, are struck by fear by the reports of these armies. Now, there's no actual conflict listed, but just the mere presence of these armies has caused these people to be discouraged. And so they come and implore these men at the wall, come home, come home. You don't want to be caught up in the battle. It's not worth it. Protect your house, your field, your family. But rather than let this serve as a moment of discouragement, Nehemiah realizes something. This is an opportunity for us to band together. We see throughout this chapter, Nehemiah understands two things. There's a vertical aspect to what's going on and a horizontal aspect. What I mean by this is Nehemiah understands that God is in control. The Lord was the first and greatest ally that he had. Not the strength of these men, not the walls of Jerusalem. It was God and God alone. He's always at the front of what he does. We see this in verse 9. But Nehemiah also realizes that if he's going to care for these people and their families, if he's going to keep them from being discouraged, if he's going to strengthen their resolve, he must use this as a battle cry. So rather than saying, okay, go home, protect your families, he says, no, stay and fight. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. The tail end of verse 14. Now there's no actual battle in Jerusalem. They get their weapons, they're protected, they're prepared for it if it comes, but the fight that is at hand is the fight to quit. The fight to say, I will see this wall brought up to completion. For Nehemiah knew that if Jerusalem stayed weak, so would the towns. They might be able to return and protect their families for a moment, but they would still be under the oppression of these neighboring countries. If you truly want to take care of your family, you have to take care of the capital. But Nehemiah's trust was ultimately in the Lord. And he, and he knew this. And so with these people, he could have made a deep theological discussion and said, here's all the reasons why. God has done this and this and this. Let's look at the Torah. Let's look at examples of history. You know our father David. And he could have made all of these examples where God has fought for his people and been delivered and said, shame on you for not having faith. Tighten up your belt strap. Get ready. Don't quit understand the scriptures. But Nehemiah does something different. He had every right to do that, and he would have been correct, but he knew if I'm going to lead these people, I need to know where they're at. Giving them theological truths is not going to help them not be scared right now. I must start to position them for battle so they have a sense of security and point them towards God and encourage them to fight for their families. And so all this is tied to the beginning of verse 14. Right before he issues the battle cry, what's he say to the people? Remember the great and awesome God. We're going to fight. We're going to get our shields. We're going to get our swords. We're going to get our bows. There's going to be a military presence here in Jerusalem. We're going to be ready if they come. But above all that, remember your God and fight for your families. Nehemiah understood the true words written by King Solomon in Psalm 127. Verse 1 tells us this there. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. If this is going to happen, it's going to happen because of God, 
Nehemiah has absolute faith that that is going to happen. So what's the result? After this battle cry, verse 15, chapter 4, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that who? God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. And each of the builders had a sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that there may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. The result of Nehemiah's resolve, of his encouragement of the people, of unifying them, is the enemies abandon their plans. There's a physical presence. Israel will not back down. They have faith and they will fight. And the enemies give up without even a skirmish. As we read this chapter, we're reminded of one simple thing. The faith of one man has a transforming effect on society. The faith of Nehemiah totally transforms the faith of the people in Jerusalem. This one man changes everything because he has faith, because he has courage, because he's willing to lead. Nehemiah, as this chapter closes, we see has led by example. He was not going to ask the people to do something and retreat to his palace where he's protected. He's not going to put burdens on them. He's not willing to do himself. He's going to sleep day and night, dressed for battle, sword in the hand, smelly, stinky, working hard, just like the people. He's in it with them. He's what we call a servant leader, willing to battle with the people. The people of Jerusalem would not be able to accuse him of being a leader who asks of them what he is not willing to do himself. His leadership and courage steady the people and help to keep them from giving in to discouragement. The story, which is full of adversity, becomes a testimony to the abundant sufficiency of God. The adversaries of God's people would not be successful for God was sufficient. Nehemiah renews their confidence in the Lord by pointing them towards him and reminding them to be courageous. He points them to the Lord in this chapter one, who is righteous. We see that in verse four, when he talks about the way that these men have spoken poorly about God's people and God himself. He reminds the people that God is powerful. He is the great an awesome God that the Israelite people had repeatedly served and that had enabled them over history to achieve great and impossible things because of his uh, invincible power. He's a God who is holy. 
those who respond to God and rebuke his people are insulting this great and awesome God himself. He cherishes his people and he holds those who revile them in contempt. He reminds the people that God is sovereign. He not only strengthens the Israelite soldiers as they stand for battle, but he has also worked behind the enemy lines to frustrate their plan. And finally, Nehemiah points to the God who is unfailing. Even in time of extreme crisis, Nehemiah can assure his team, our God will fight for us. He has not the slightest doubt that God will deliver on his promise to his people. They were enabled to continue and to find success, not because of their own power, not because of their own strength, but because they trusted in the faithful and reliable God. So as we close this morning, there's a few questions we must answer. First, what, is, what does our example set? What are you telling people with your perseverance or lack of it? Are you, have, are you somebody who has trouble with follow-through? You set out to do something but don't seem to make it through it? How might you become a person who is able to persevere? Who is able to finish the tasks that are at hand? To not wilt under the pressure? It's tied into this next question. Who are you laboring for? Are you working for God or for man? Scripture tells us that all work should be done as it's done unto God, which means we should do it with not procrastination, putting together a measly few things thrown together at the last minute, but to be done with as much excellence as we can. Do you have the concern for God's honor that Nehemiah has? When people look at you and see your work, do you see it as something that honors God or dishonors God? And finally, are you leading by example, doing what you ask of others, or are you simply telling them what to do and your life shows no personal sacrifice. Nehemiah is willing to mix it up, to put his life on the line, to be in battle potentially with the people. We should be people who are willing to lay our own lives down for Christ as well, to do whatever he's asked of us, to not demand things of other people we're not willing to do for ourselves, and to say, God, I am yours. Whatever you ask me to do, I will do. I lay it all down. I'm willing to sacrifice everything for you. Let's pray. Father, you are the great and awesome God, faithful to the end, power that is invincible. We see you at work preserving the people in Jerusalem. But Father, we also see this man, Nehemiah, out in front, encouraging these people to find the resolve, to not wilt under the pressure. Father, we want to be like that, to be people who when the pressure from the world comes on us, we don't wilt away, that we stand strong, that we honor you with our work, with our deeds, with our actions, that we might be people who experience personal sacrifice to bring honor, to persevere, and to do great things for your name. Father, we want to be a people fully faithful and devoted to you. Might you do that. Might you help us to become strengthened in our resolve, to become more dependent on you, to trust in you, and trust in Jesus with everything that we have. Amen.